Today's podcast guest is Stephen Levy, who the Washington Post has referred to as America's premier technology journalist. One of my commandments of journalism is that when you start on a story, what you find when you research the story is always, and I mean underline it twice, always more interesting than your preconception of what it might be. Levy has been covering the digital revolution for over 35 years. He is currently editor-at-large at Wired Magazine, where he was one of its founding writers. During the height of the internet boom, he was the columnist and chief technology correspondent for Newsweek. He also wrote columns for Rolling Stone and Macworld. He's pretty much lived the real-life version of Almost Famous. Have you seen that movie? It's one of my favorites. Stephen Levy's new book, Facebook, The Inside Story, is the definitive story written with unprecedented access of the company that connected the world and reaped the consequences. His seven previous books include the groundbreaking Hackers, Insanely Great, Crypto, which won the Frankfurt Digital Book Prize, and In the Plex, the definitive book on Google that was a New York Times bestseller and Amazon's business book of the year, and incidentally, how Stephen and I originally met. In this episode, Stephen and I discussed how he created his own luck and took proactive steps to create career opportunities for himself that wouldn't have materialized otherwise. We also discussed the keys to success and leadership he's collected over his long career of investigating the most successful tech CEOs in the world. We also dive into his perspective on the role technology plays in the future of journalism and modern democracy. All of this and a few tidbits about how he created a deep friendship with Steve Wozniak over their mutual love of music. Oh, and there's a side note story about how he found Einstein's brain, too. You're not going to want to miss a minute of this. Trust me. So, Stephen Levy, thank you so much for joining us on the Bet on Yourself podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to uh, be here. I've been really, really looking forward to catching up with you because you and I first met, if I remember right, it was the summer of 2007. So that, it's a long time we've known each other. Yeah, yeah, no, we went around the world. We literally did. In fact, um, in preparation for our interview, I was rereading your book, um, Facebook, and you start off in the first chapter talking about when you were embedded with Mark Zuckerberg as he was traveling across Africa. And it gave me flashbacks to a very similar journey that you and I had uh, literally circling the world, starting off in Tokyo and Beijing. And I think we ended up in Bangalore and can't remember the last. Tel Aviv. Tel Aviv, thank you. It was Tel Aviv. Um, so yeah, I definitely <laughs> related to that part of the book in a way that most readers probably don't. <laughs> uh, so our, yeah, our friendship literally started with circling the globe together with um, about 20, 20 year olds, the smartest computer engineers in the world. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, I, uh, by quite a few years, I think was uh, the oldest person on that trip. Um, there was, you know, uh, someone like in the forties, right? Um, yeah, uh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, so the, the first night we were in Tokyo and a few of these young leaders of the future at Google, those are the people who were traveling, uh, went out for karaoke. And I made it a point to, they said, hey, do you want to come with us? And I made it a point to, you know, to do this, to show that, you know, um, you know, they weren't going to have to take care of me or, you know, I could keep up with them. And uh, I belted out some tunes with them. I remember that well. I might even have a photo of that. <laughs> I'll have to dig through my archives. <laughs> Please do not show that photo. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> but uh, that trip was actually your original research for your book in the Plex uh, about Google. Well, it gave me the idea to do it. I'd been thinking about doing a book about Google and that sort of showed me a way that I could uh, attack it uh, by embedding myself to some degree within Google and telling it more from the inside out. So um, I think that might have been um, an ulterior motive of having me go on the trip. Maybe they were thinking that I might want to do that. Um, but after I got a view of what Google was like from the inside, I really wanted to do that book and continue uh, with that kind of access that I had, which was extraordinary uh, on, on the trip and you know, was able to uh, get Google to sign up and uh, as maybe we'll talk about, uh, uh, do a similar dive into Facebook. Yeah. 
Um, so I've kind of started in the middle of, of our story. Maybe I should back up for those who might not know your career trajectory. Um, maybe we start kind of in the beginning of your education. So I know you, you actually studied literature in university. What was your inspiration or what brought you into journalism and tech in particular? Because you specialized in tech very early, like in the 80s. How did you spot this trend or did you just stumble upon it? Okay, well, I'll, I'll start, I'll go back to the beginning. I grew up um, in Philadelphia in somewhat of a uh, upwardly mobile yet working class neighborhood. Uh, the people were generally a couple generations uh, Americans, um, you know, second or third usually. And, uh, um, and they had aspirations for their kids. They were very motivated. Um, the neighborhood was old Jewish and Catholic. And, um, but in my family, no one had gone to college before. And it just was the idea of going to college and not really which college it was, uh, which motivated them. And, um, and I just loved to read. So when I got to college, uh, I became an English major. It was the path of least resistance. And I really didn't have much in the way of a firm idea of what I was going to do. Um, I loved music. I loved listening to music. I had a guitar. I played coffee shops and stuff like that. But um, this was in the 60s, late 60s, and people weren't thinking uh, around me in, in a very dedicated career fashion. So I, I became an English major, and what do you do when you graduate with an English major is you go to graduate school in English. Um, it was sort of a continuation, again, a path of least resistance. I went to Temple University, my undergrad in Penn State uh, for graduate school. But as soon as I got to graduate school, I realized that uh, they were treating literature and graduate studies in a different way than we did in, in undergraduate. It was um, very dry and, um, you know, you had to take it in a scholarly fashion. And I learned pretty quickly, I was not cut out to be a scholar. The very first class we took was kind of a boot camp with this um, very esteemed uh, bibliographer named Harrison T. Meserol. He looked a little like Sidney Greenstreet. <laughs> and he was the official bibliographer for the Modern Language Association, which is, you know, kind of the pinnacle of, you know, for English majors. And um, he was kind to me, but sort of pointed out that, you know, maybe this was not going to be my calling. <laughs> um, and I, I finished my master's. But during that time, uh, I took a creative writing course. And the teacher of that, who was actually a well-known science fiction writer, um, uh, saw what I could do and sort of saw my situation and helped me arrange an internship as a graduate student in literature, which was very unusual. So I actually managed the quarterly system to get quarterly credits to do a three-month internship at the local newspaper in central Pennsylvania, the Center Daily Times. And it was great. It was an intern. I did everything from um, every week. You know, this was like a time of um, uh, inflation. So every week I went to the supermarket and wrote down the meat prices, compare it with last week's prices. And, um, and I wrote some feature stories. I did a review of the school play, the, the Penn State play. Um, I wrote an editorial. They let me do anything, which was great. And I had that in my, in my mind as I completed my master's and then just hung around Penn State for uh, the better part of a year. Um, trying to write a novel, and then figured this is enough. I have to do something with my life. So I went back to my hometown of Philadelphia, um, and with the internship in mind, decided I'll, I'll try being a journalist. I'll, let, me, let me see how that works out. And of course, no one responded to my letters asking for a job. So I started writing for the weekly paper, kind of an underground paper in Philadelphia, and uh, taught myself on the fly, how to write that kind of stuff and uh, wanted to write for magazines. And um, after a few months, got assignments from the places in Philadelphia, which you could be uh, a professional magazine writer, uh, Philadelphia Magazine and the magazine for the newspaper, the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, which ran on Sundays at the time. And uh, I, I learned to do it and, and loved it. it. It was a way to write 
Uh, you had a lot of choice in what you did. You got out into the world, you talked to people. And that was kind of a magical time. Being a journalist out of nowhere elevated you. You could do talk to whoever you wanted. Right. So most of the time people go around and they say, well, who's my celebrity sighting? So, I mean, the first month I was writing just for $10 a story for the weekly paper, I, I went to New York City and interviewed Patti Smith um, and went to CBGB's. I interviewed Allen Ginsberg. I hung out with this radical group move in Philadelphia. Um, and you know, so the world opens up to you if you're a journalist. And that was really exciting. I didn't know that part of your origin story. That's really incredible and makes you even a better fit than I even anticipated for exactly what we kind of talk about here on Bet on Yourself, of just making opportunities when they appear limited. When your options appear limited, how do you open, build a doorway through which you can go? And I love that you just kind of took it upon yourself, jumped in, gave it a try, trusted in your own talents to figure it out and ask the right questions. And then you didn't get intimidated somehow once you were suddenly in the room with these major larger than life celebrities. Oh, I was intimidated. <laughs> Patty Smith was saying, relax, calm down. <laughs> it's actually really comforting to hear because I think a lot of people can relate to that in your first job suddenly you talk your way into uh, a responsibility that sounds exciting the second you get it you're like oh no what have I done <laughs> I definitely no, no it, it, it was I mean so you know it, I just took naturally to the, I, I just love that process and you know when I got fixated hey you could write whole magazine stories which actually would pay you you know um you know, uh, not a great sum, you know, in local journalism in Philadelphia, but enough to pay your rent. And, um, you know, I remember I, it was March 75, 1975, that I took that ride to Philadelphia um, uh, to go home and lived in a house in, you know, this neighborhood Germantown with some friends. And um, that November, I had three magazine stories. I had one in the Inquirer magazine, and two in Philadelphia Magazine, because I, the first one I had done, they held for a while. Mm. How did you then transition from these um, local magazines and then eventually end up at um, Newsweek and Wired? What was that trajectory like? So uh, I, in the end of 1978, I got a, my first real job. Uh, I, it was a regional magazine, uh, a, a, pretty new one. It was only about a year old. Uh, it started in New Jersey uh, called New Jersey Monthly. Um, that was kind of the golden age of regional magazines. They all, you know, a lot of them like Philadelphia Magazine and um, New York, New York Magazine and uh, New West and California, Texas Monthly. It did great work and it was a, a really plum job that you could write these magazine stories uh, you know, like every month for uh, one of these magazines. So I, got, I worked in New Jersey uh, for a couple of years at that magazine and um, met the woman who was now my wife there. And in 1980, we moved to New York City to be national writers. And, uh, and my wife wound up working in the Village Voice. She won a Pulitzer Prize there uh, in a couple within a year after we moved. Uh, so that was fantastic. Um, and uh, about a year after we moved, I got an assignment to write about these people called computer hackers. And that was my first introduction to that world of tech. And that blew me away. Those people were so exciting. I went to California, uh, the stories for Rolling Stone. And <clears throat> I thought, these people are amazing. This world of computer is technology is amazing and getting the most out of it. It's totally uh, breaks my preconceptions of what it was. I thought it was kind of be kind of boring, but actually it was the future and these people were making it. So I wanted to write more and more about it. Um, and that was a great time to do that because uh, personal computers were just beginning to take off. And previously uh, tech journalism, as it were, was hobbyist stuff. You know, people would write about you know, what they discovered and how they learned how to do something on the computer. They usually put their address at the end of the story. Um, and with the money pouring in, they were getting advertising and wanted professional writers, which I had become by then. So I was in demand there, but also the kind of publications I was writing for, like Rolling Stone and New York Magazine, uh, were getting a little interested in it. And they were happy that someone who they knew was getting interested in the subject and could write about it. So I wrote about it more and more and uh, did a book called Hackers. Um, 
that which, was breakthrough book for you, wasn't it? That was in what early eighties, eighty four, was yeah, it? Eighty four came out, yeah. um, and that was you know super timely, and you know was able to document this class of people. You know, the book came out in the four; it's never been out of print, yeah. um, and it is really gratifying to me. A week doesn't go by without someone writing me and saying, this book changed my life. Thank you. So that, that you can imagine your first book. That's kind of awesome. Uh, um, and I kept at it. I, isn't it amazing to think that how one seemingly random assignment can change your life trajectory? That has definitely been true for my career path. And I love to hear that, that there's this kind of golden moment where somebody has this life pivot and you don't even maybe realize it in the moment. What, what is yeah, it? It's funny. And you look back on how that happened and, you know, just like when you meet like a person becomes your partner, everything becomes, you know, part of this, you know, little personal legend, you know, in my case, it's, it's actually an interesting backstory. Um, I owe it to Jane Fonda in a weird way. Well, um, <laughs> Jane Fonda uh, had a movie production company. She hired um, a woman named Susan Line, who's actually quite a prominent figure now in, in the industry. Uh, she worked for ABC and um, AOL. She's a, a, a venture capitalist now. She invests in you know, women-run businesses. Um, but she had been my wife's editor at The Village Voice. And she was hired to sort of find magazine stories and get writers to write them for the publications they would usually write for, and then option it for the movies. Oh. So I got a little extra money because the story about hackers, which she suggested to me, uh, was pre-optioned for a movie. We never made a movie from it, but um, it got me going on, on my career. I'm kind of imagining you as the character in Almost Famous. You know that movie? <laughs> I'm just like being really scrappy and jumping on the bus and just like leaning into this like crazy life that had been presented to you and making the most of this like opportunity that almost just fell from the sky. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually had an Almost Famous kind of weekend. Um, so <laughs> when I was starting to document this stuff, and of course I've talked to people like Steve Wozniak, um, I learned that uh, Steve Wozniak was going to do this big rock festival um, in Southern California. And I was the one who told Rolling Stone about it because uh, I had been doing a lot of work for them. <clears throat> and they said, oh, yeah, yeah, you can go cover that. So I was the Rolling Stone reporter at the first Us Festival. It was the biggest thing since Woodstock. There were hundreds of thousands of people there. And because I knew Steve Wozniak and his people and a friend of mine who I went out with worked for the San Francisco paper, and he knew Bill Graham and he introduced me, who was involved in that back and forth between Bill Graham and Wozniak's people who were fighting about this. And I was like right in the middle of the action of this giant rock festival with every star of the eighties that you could imagine. And, uh, okay. an amazing experience. Wow. Your cool points just went like way up. That's so amazing. Um, so Wozniak. I, I, I chatted with Dee backstage. Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> did you just pinch yourself or you, did you have a moment to step back and be like, how did this just happen to me? Well, there was, there was something, some, something of that. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was, you know, like an element that brought together this new career I, I was having in writing about tech with the one that I was always passionate about. You know, when I started, you know, back in Philadelphia, a lot of the writing I did was like rock criticism. Um, and I once, you know, I, I grew up on Rolling Stone. When I was in college, I read it religiously. And as I said before, I, I just love music. And, and uh, my God, in the you know, late 60s, early 70s, there was amazing music to listen to. And uh, though I realized that being a rock critic in the 70s wasn't as interesting as it would have been in, in the 60s when that was really changing the world. But tech was like that. I mean, just the way music changed the world in the late 60s, tech was changing the world in the 80s and, you know, and continues to. So it was really something that was changing civilization. And if you were writing about it, you were writing what I believed and still do believe was the biggest story of our time. So 
that was really incredibly lucky. So I was really, you know, at the US Festival, it was both things. They had a kind of a computer show uh, at that festival that was interesting. And you know, I, I interviewed Jerry Garcia and he said, technology is the new drugs. <laughs> it's one of those things, sometimes when you're interviewing someone, they'll have a sentence and uh, you can actually see the words like floating in front of you as they say, this is a quote, man, that's going in the story. And that's probably a call out. You're watching the headline being written right in front of you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, that's so fascinating. I didn't know about that. I mean, most people, when they interview Steve Wozniak, you know, the right-hand man to Steve Jobs at the early days of Apple in its inception, um, most people focus only on that side, but you really saw this beauty of combination of skills and revolutions happening simultaneously. So I'm curious, you um, are one of the few people I know who, um, have a similar experience to me of massive exposure to very famous high-performing people. People, you know, world leaders, celebrities, these celebrity tech CEOs that we now have. Um, so I'm wondering if I can ask you some of the questions that I am most commonly asked, because I'm curious how your perspective as um, a journalist, viewing it from the outside and really investigating it, differs maybe from my side, which is like very embedded and fully drank the Kool-Aid perhaps. So oh, you I, know all the secrets. In I do. I do know where all the- <laughs> I, I have to jar them out of people one by one. <laughs> you, you just get to observe. I, I have, yeah, I have some stories for sure. Um, I'm wondering, as you think back on all these people that you've met, do you see a commonality between the formula for greatness? People often ask me, because I've worked for Jeff Bezos, Eric Schmidt, Marissa Meyer, I know all the major tech players really well, world leaders, celebrities. They, people always want to know, what's the common denominator? Is there a secret formula for greatness and how can it be replicable? Well, yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, you, you think about people like Steve Jobs and, um, and Jeff and you know, Larry and Sergey uh, Zuckerberg. I mean, they are individuals, you know, so there's differences. Definitely. But what they have in common is uh, a kind of fearlessness and, you know, like a way to filter out, you know, or even get buoyed by criticism. Yeah. And, you know, I was a, I, I, I've always been fascinated with what makes someone a particularly extraordinary person who they are, right? I mean, how did Steve Jobs get to be Steve Jobs, right? And, you know, uh, Malcolm Gladwell had this theory that, oh, if you spend 10,000 hours doing something um, and the timing is right for it, you know, that's how you get to be, um, you know, uh, an outlier, right? This is, is the term he used, but wait a minute. Um, you know, like you take someone like Bill Gates, um, clearly he spent the 10,000 hours coding, but lots of people actually spent 10,000 hours coding and there's only one Bill Gates, right? And I don't know what you spend 10,000 hours doing if you're Steve Jobs, but if you look at his childhood, he was Steve Jobs when he was 12 years old. He was calling up the head of HP and saying, give me a chip, right? You know, which most of us wouldn't do. Uh, you know, so, and, um, I once had a conversation with Ray Kurzweil about this, and you know, and he had an interesting theory, which I think is not all untrue. You know, he charts out how technology moves at an accelerated pace, a logarithmic pace over the years. And, you know, like humanity spent a lot of time where there wasn't much movement, right? Someone would invent an app arrowhead and then you know there'd be like a thousand years then they'd come up with something else right um and in the last 200 years a lot way different right like the the, the curve goes straight up you know to to the moon and, and 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 still going up at that pace and he thinks there's certain kinds of people who can handle that concept because it's a hard concept to to to, to grasp this logarithmic change the change which is exponential that you know that, that goes up so quickly that an idea which is considered crazy is not crazy because our capacity to do impossible things, you know, is within our grasp because of the arc of technology. And he thinks there's someone, something that certain people just have the ability to, to take that in. And the second thing, which he says you have to have is, you know, as I touched on this before, the ability to keep going when people think you're nuts, 
<laughs> when you yes. move on. You know, and Bezos actually is quite explicit about this. He says that, you know, that, that you have to be willing to be misunderstood. And I, I think all those people have that self-conviction that, that when everyone else says I'm wrong, wait a minute, I know I'm right. Yeah. Right? And it isn't, um, you know, uh, just a, a guess that they're right. They've seen the data and that's convinced them that they're right. Exactly. I watched Jeff stand up in a very contentious board meeting once and fill the board with the math proving that his vision of the future could be accomplished because they just said it's the same thing. Um, so many of us are limited by the present and what's possible now. And these, these characters, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Eric Schmitz, Larry Sergey, all these great dreamers, Je uh, Mark Zuckerberg, they are not limited by, by those perceptions of reality and possibilities at all. And you're right, the tolerance for being misunderstood is very high. For me as a normal human, that burden is heavy. For them, they don't feel it. They just- yeah, mo Most of us, when you know, we have like an intense criticism, we, 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 back, we back off a bit. And, um, everyone around us says, you know, boy, that's dumb. Um, you know, we, we backtrack a little. Um, and it's those moments the, the, when we look back on that we resist that. Those are our proud moments. Um, remember that movie uh, with Albert Brooks called Defending Your Life? Did you ever see that movie? No, Defending Your Life. Okay, tell it's me. It's an amazing movie. Uh, Albert Brooks is a genius. But uh, where the plot is that he dies and he goes to this like limbo given essentially you're he was arguing for you to get into heaven okay. and you know is your defense attorney and the the criteria they use that your life has been worthwhile is bravery to stand up for yourself wow and the cowardly moments that you had are the things that reject you and I thought, you know, that, that's a comedy, it's hysterical. Um, but it is, you know, I, I think he's onto something there. That's a very powerful concept because I am naturally timid by nature, but because of the jobs I've had and the people with whom I've worked, that just had to be beaten out of me. It's not my nature, but it's now my nurture. I, I've been taught to be brave and to stand up and to do thing, really hard things in front of very important people with a high likelihood of failure. And you, you build up a bit of a tolerance over time. But I'm curious, as you've been, you've now investigated the heaviest hitters in technology, let alone in other aspects of, of our, our society. What do you see are the common maybe um, strengths and maybe some of their weaknesses or their errors that you're seeing among these these larger than life celebrity CEOs who can easily shake off the criticism of others. Well, strengths. You know, one one strength is, and I, I think this is sort of remarkable. All those people what they have in common is they started something small and are able to keep sort of like a like a mental control of the, the organization as it grows incredibly large. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it, it, you, you, you think, you know, this is something that I haven't experienced. I watch other people do it, but still I'm, I'm blown away by it, you know, to be in charge of something where you have hundreds of thousands in Jeff's case of, of employees or, you know, and, you know, a billion, two billion customers. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so massive infrastructure. Um, and, you know, uh, and you're the, the, the person in charge, how to keep that running to the point where people acknowledge that you, the founder who is still there, is still the best person to do that. Right. And you think, you know, uh, of Bezos jobs, you know, who left Apple and came back as, you know, more powerful than he ever was when he was starting it. Um, uh, that, that is really remarkable. I think the weakness comes from your bubble. Mm -hmm. it, you know, um, that you're right enough to not listen carefully when the bad news comes or even, you know, uh, inadvertently, to create a surrounding group around you that isn't comfortable to give you the, the bad news that you, that you say you want to hear. 
Yes. Um, so I think it really is getting the data that tells you you're wrong and having the people confident enough around you to know that that's what you really want. Because these people I generally do want that. Um, is hard and you know and sometimes you know i wrote about facebook there was a case where i'm sure mark zuckerberg would say i heard him say you know seeing you know that he wants people around him to be candid but you know when they do he just does what he wants to do anyway right it's so interesting i'm really interested in your perspective as you've done really in-depth analysis of these major companies um especially google and facebook who are neighbors our campuses are without traffic less than a 10 minute drive from each other uh i still say we gosh i but i was at google yeah. 12 years i've been away for two and i still say we <laughs> there's never no traffic no there's never there's never no traffic <laughs> So I'm curious of your perspectives on the difference between the leadership, because I have very personally very strong opinions about different leadership models and the protections that they've put in place for exactly what you're describing, of making sure that the hard questions are asked, asked and that the right things are being done, not just can we do it, but should we do it? So I'm curious, so you did it, it I think you were working, working on your book, Facebook, for quite a long time. It was a long research period, both for your book on Google in the Plex and your book on Facebook. Facebook. Um, tell me, what were your, were you, did you have any surprise findings of differences or similarities as you were investigating both? Well, I mean, look, the most common thing people talk about culturally and the difference between the two companies is uh, springs from Facebook was like a dorm room. Yeah. operation started in dorm room and google started in graduate school True. um and you know there was this you know more of this intellectual rigor around google and you know uh it was more of a, a sciency company and building these moonshot kind of projects there whereas facebook was more grounded you know it was done as a project to you know first captivate the harvard campus but then every other campus um uh, zuckerberg his personality is one where he grew up idolizing conquerors mm -hmm. right augustus caesar he was like a fanboy of augustus caesar right which was a weird role model um and he loved alexander the great and um and uh that's the way he colonized campuses around the country and in the world. And when he opened up Facebook uh, to anyone, not just students, um, you know, immediately he wanted everyone in the world to be on it. And even though Facebook has had its science projects, you know, it was all in service to this idea that everyone would be on Facebook. He had this vision that yeah. he stuck to, whereas you know, Google, it was like, let's do some of this and let's, oh, we can scan every book in the world, right? Wouldn't that be cool? And while um, Larry uh, Page, um, you know, expanded the company and saying, well, wouldn't it be cool if we figured out how to make people like not die? And he started a company for that. So uh, I don't think, you know, even though uh, Mark has his foundation and his, his wife's a doctor, um, he's not working, you know, on, having people not die right, right? Uh, his philanthropy will be like address diseases but um it's very much in the google character to say you know disease disease right let's just like get rid of death to begin with and then and we won't have to worry about diseases right so um it's really i've been thinking a lot about uh the message that comes through in your book the facebook the inside story um, and especially right now, because we've um, recording this the week after the US elections, presidential election. And so democracy and information and this concept of truth 
and also um, this faith and um, trust within journalism, all of that feels like it got put in a blender over the last four years. And it's interesting because a lot of people, Facebook has some responsibility in that. All major tech companies have some responsibility to play. But I'm curious as your perspective as a journalist, which is the third checks and balance in our constitution of, of keeping this kind of power in check. What is your perspective as a journalist around the um, intersection between technology and modern democracy and how that affects your work as a journalist and, and reporting the truth and something that the public can rely on? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I think journalism is more important than ever now. Um, you know, but as you know, you know, we have a new uh, current to beat back against, which is this, you know, um, a wider embrace of things that aren't true, of misinformation, of conspiracy, and um, a larger number of people than we had before who think that what we, and, you know, and I'm including myself among, you know, the cohort of journalists who are very committed to, you know, being accurate and honest and having the stories tell larger truths. You know, a lot of people just don't don't buy that. Don't don't believe that these you know publications, which you know consciously dedicate themselves to the truth, they don't believe we're telling the truth, and that and that's a problem. Yeah. Um, and I think social media, um, Facebook in particular, can amplify that equivalency of you know, true stuff and fake stuff. And as, as much as in the past few years, the time I was doing the book, Facebook was grappling with this. Um, when I signed my first contract you know, to do the book, um, and it, it wasn't that big on the list of things I think I'd be writing about, but it turned out to be fairly central to what was happening at Facebook during the three years I was writing and researching it. And um, it is a problem. Facebook has taken strides in trying to address it, but it's, it's sort of baked into the system. And I described step by step how that happened. And it's still, I'd say, you know, uh, much more of an amplifier of that idea that, you know, truth is relative, um, that, uh, that it wants to be. And, you know, and I think it's not willing to take the steps to really go in the other direction, um, which is, you know, a problem for society. It is. I remember when um, Mark was recruiting Sheryl Sandberg from Google, and I actually felt really happy about that because I so respect her as an executive. She's very smart, um, just so diligent, and I thought she was exactly what he needed. I felt like he was maybe learning from Larry and Sergey's example of hiring kind of someone more senior to himself to come in and help run with the operations. But I actually, I've always wondered to myself, why didn't that work out the way I expected? And your book actually um, put a flashlight on it for the first time of like the way in which they um, divided up their responsibilities didn't allow for this checks and balance. And it ended up with siloed information where they didn't see the red flag soon enough or weren't right. to acknowledge red flags. Maybe you can walk us through a little bit of, of what you discovered in that process and how we came to have our current situation. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think your instinct, your first instinct is right. I mean, Cheryl was at that moment what was needed for Facebook, um, the, you know, the so-called adult in the room, but more someone who had scaled a big organization before. So she helped Mark in doing that. Um, she was able to um, make some corrections in the culture of Facebook, not to change change it 100%, but to um, uh, make it more inclusive, particularly for women and, um, you know, eradicate some of the dorm room stuff that was still uh, around the, you know, the, you know, the kind of pro sure. engine stuff. Yeah, it was. You know, and, uh, um, but early on, they made an agreement, you know, how are we going to divvy this stuff up? Because Cheryl, you know, was not just you know, the, like a, a, a regular number two, but someone who was going to have a say and some autonomy in doing what she did. And basically she took on all the stuff that Mark wasn't so interested in, which was sales. Um, uh, she didn't get to design the products and advertising. That's a product stuff and engineering that Mark did, but she did sales and dealing with the clients. She did the stuff of dealing with 
policy and the, you know, setting up the, the Washington office and lobbying um, and the content moderation, how, how that, that fell to her too. And even, you know, kind of weirdly, the, you know, the chief security officer wound up reporting to the general counsel, Cheryl had legal, who reported to Cheryl. So when the problems arose in Cheryl's world, um, in part because she felt she could take care of it on her own, um, but uh, at the time the problems really began to fester, she was just regaining her stride after a terrible tragedy that happened to her. Her husband suddenly died and he was an amazing guy, a perfect partner for her. Yeah. And um, the people in her organization, you know, when she was finding herself, were, you know, became a little more autonomous. Um, it's a credit to her that she hired great people that could keep this going. Um, and Cheryl basically felt that she didn't want to take these problems to Mark when they bubbled up to her. And, you know, as a result, um, by the time people literally had to bypass Cheryl to get, you know, a couple of them specifically the you know the Russian interference and the um, you know kind of the, some of the disinformation stuff you know they had to sort of leap over to her to, to contact Mark's lieutenants to get it in front of Mark. Um, uh, by then, you know, the, the stuff had done its damage. Yeah, and recovery from that has been slow and seemingly unwilling to to kind of overcorrect for that. I'm curious. I mean, they're taking some steps well, to in this most recent election to, to do that, but not to the lengths that, for example, Twitter has done to kind of put warning labels on these groups or take down um, potentially violent or misinformation. Well, Facebook would push back and say, you know, unwilling. They, they, they have, I and mean, to be fair, they have done a lot, but fundamentally, you know, the structure, the way Facebook operates, the way the algorithm operates, that was set up to encourage stuff going viral on the network. And uh, it's tough to have a system like that that doesn't amplify sensational content and conspiracy kind of content. Um, and so those fundamentals uh, are, are hard to buck by saying, uh, we're gonna tweak this or put a warning label on that. And sometimes you put a warning label on something and people wanna read it more. True, <laughs> it can backfire. And I can't throw stones in a glass house because we absolutely had these same conversations at YouTube and it's an ongoing debate about how to um, address this within YouTube world because you're exactly right. The algorithm is designed to increase your viewership, increase hours, increase clicks, increase sharing. And the more sensational the content, the more that happens. And so how do we, when you have that as your business model and you sell advertising based on hours and viewers and eyeballs, right. it, it can, you know, you've built yourself a contradiction of priorities. Uh, it's, it's not an easy thing. People ask me all the time about how worried I am about tech and I am quite worried. But at the moment I tell them what um, gives me faith is I know these people personally. I have met these leaders and I believe that they're trying to do the right things in the world. But there will come a time where we have a change of the guard and these people might be less benevolent than the people I know and have worked side by side with for 18 years. Um, and so there's an interesting role for, for journalism, for, um, for lawmakers, for the public, to have a really educated discussion and, and debate, but that all comes down to actually knowing the facts and uncovering it. So thank well, you. Also, I, mean, I have to say, and even among those people, and again, I, I, I agree with you. I know these, I, I generally like all these people, right? Um, but when you have a mission, which sounds pretty good, right? You know, that, you know, we're gonna be, um, give all the world's, gather all the world's information that people can get access to all the world's information. Sounds great. We're gonna connect the world. People are gonna be come, come together all, all over the world, right? We're gonna be the place where anyone can buy anything you want, you know, friction-free at the best price. All these things sound fantastic. And you become so convinced that the, your mission is great, that the steps you take to move that mission wider um, become, uh, sometimes if it's dicey, you'll feel the end justifies the mean. And also because, hey, these people say, well, I know I'm a good person, so what I do must be good, right? Um, it's very tough to um, 
be aware of the power you have. You're one of these 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 companies, and you know, can, and to have your mission that you know, when you try to accomplish it, to ignore some of the second level consequences of it that, that, that come about. In Facebook's case, you know, uh, they to connect the world is great. The faster we do this, the better. So we've got to grow and grow fast. Uh, and we got to go all over the world. So let's go to this country and that country. Um, and we'll let the people in the country do the translations because sometimes we don't even know the languages. Right. So you have, you go to Myanmar, knowing Facebook speaks Burmese right. and stuff happens on there that they can't read. Well, what's it doing? It's inciting people to violence, to riot. People are dying. And you don't want to hear about this when it happens. So it's a couple more years before you even translate, in Facebook's case, your policies about content into Burmese, even though people have been coming to you and complaining. It's incredible. And I understand that there's an issue of scale. And when you're moving so fast, and Facebook's motto is what, move fast and break things or something. Yeah, they, they, they figured maybe that wasn't the greatest motto when all these things were broken. Yeah, but I, I know it's hard and it's it's an increasingly important conversation to be having. Um, during my last year at Google, or second to last year at Google, I actually worked in the London office sitting with the DeepMind team, which is the artificial intelligence company that Google acquired. And one of the reasons that I um, really enjoyed sitting with that team was actually about 30% of our team was ethicists. People not... Um, you know, the engineers are all pursuing like what we can do. And the ethicists were saying, well, what should we do? What impact should we have with this technology? What good can we do with it? How can we educate lawmakers so they can regulate it in a way that reflects their, their local values? It's not, there are no easy answers to this. And um, it, it's so much good can happen with these emerging technologies, but it also has um, equal possibilities to once in the wrong hands of less benevolent actors to really um, shake the future of our of democracy or, or the planet. So I'm curious for you, um, as you look at this trajectory, you, you've started in print media, <laughs> you've moved into um, digital, now we've got the social media. You are harnessing that in really creative ways. For example, I love your newsletter um, that you do through Wired. And I think that's reaching kind of an individual. We're removing this filter of needing to go through a particular publication. What was your thought process in kind of um, starting next next wave and connecting with readers, uh, especially maybe millennial readers for the first time. And how is that informing this mission of, of providing this like trustworthy uh, source of information? Yeah, I think, well, I mean, one thing I, I learned too, um, we didn't talk about a, you know, so uh, in the career in yeah. 1995, I went to work for Newsweek and did 12 years, at, you know, very traditional publication at the time they were, under attack by the internet. And when I left, was, they were paying people to leave because you know, wow. they weren't doing so well. And then I joined Wired, but I left Wired in 2014 for a couple of years. I joined, I started a publication called Back Channel. And what I liked about it, one of the things I liked about it, I liked a few things about it, um, was it was you know uh, on a platform where people were creators. And we drew on that, you know, so the publication I started um, uh, had this, you know, ability to look at what someone had written on Medium. And hey, this is kind of cool. Maybe can we re-edit this and put some nice graphics on it and make it part of our publication? You know, and sometimes we would do that. We pay the people and they would be part of our publication. Um, and uh, when I... We wound up back at Wired. Uh, Condé Nast bought Back Channel when, you know, at some point um, our boss, Seth Williams, decided he didn't want to have publications. Um, he changed his mind again and then started them again. Uh, but uh, I, I thought maybe I'll try to do a newsletter for Wired uh, because it's a way to speak to people more personally. Um, when you go into their inbox, even more than writing a column, it is like a one-on-one -on -one thing and your personality, you know, uh, becomes part of what you're writing about. And, you know, uh, uh, and, you know, there's different parts of the newsletter and people should, you know, uh, go to Wired and just search for my name and find the plain text newsletter and 
uh, and sign up for it because you know, every Friday it shows up in, in your mailbox. And it is like my letter to you. It's kind of a column, but it's also uh, something personal and you, know, kind of, and you don't have to follow the same conventions you do when you're writing for a publication. Um, so I, I found that to be a really satisfying way to reach people. I think it's so high quality. I look forward to it every Friday when it hits my box. Uh, so thank you for that. And I do, I find it, I, I do feel different. Like I know your work so well. I've read all your books. I have met you. I feel like I know your voice through your columns and things you read. But that does feel different. It feels like I kind of know you in a way that maybe um, social media was originally intended to, to give you an authentic look into the way someone thinks and what's on their mind. And, um, and I, I appreciate it more than just the visual, well, much more than the visual media because that's so altered and it's only the happy and it's not, it's not reflective of life. And I like that you address these very hard hitting questions. You don't shy away from kind of the uncomfortable topics and you really help bring people along and educate them in the conversation. And for me, I think that's what uh, America in particular needs, especially right now, is a common dialogue where people have some facts, some understanding of what we're grappling with and why it's not so easy to fix. So I think that's a, a, a really, really effective way that you've, you've um, connected with these new readers and brought them in so that if, because I don't know, there might be a millennial who wouldn't pick up Wired on a newsstand in an airport, you know, to read on a flight, but having this in their inbox really helps them like enter into something that otherwise might feel like an intimidating conversation. Yeah, I mean, I, I have, I feel comfortable enough in, in that I can ask questions of myself Yeah. in there and, you know, so, and, and, and share that with people. And it's interesting, you know, we used to be Wired Magazine, but now, you know, we're Wired, right? And you know, it really is, uh, you know, not just a, you know, like a way to describe yourself. It, it's, you know, uh, we tag on there. Um, it, you know, wired is wired, whether it's in print or, you know, the, the web stuff or my newsletter, you know, um, you know, and, and it's a good exercise for us to try to figure out what makes something wired, wired. Um, and, uh, and it's satisfying for me to be there. You know, I was freelancing uh, at the time Wired started, and I was among the group of the first contributing writers. So I am the only person who's writing for Wired who was involved with the magazine when it started, um, you know, what, like 27 years ago, whatever it was. You've really seen the full spectrum of that evolution of it. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I could definitely talk to you for 10 more hours about all of this. So to wrap up, um, just two final questions. I'm wondering if you look back over your career, is there a moment or an achievement or something of which you're most proud? Is there kind of a highlight of like, wow, I can't believe I did that or experienced that? Well, there's definitely been high points. I mean, you know, in the early in my career, I found Einstein's brain. That was kind of fun. That's the most amazing asterisk side note ever. You weren't even looking for it. You were just, you were working. Well, I was looking for it. I, I, I didn't come across it like a street. You know, my editor told me to find Einstein's brain. No one knew what happened to it. And I, you know, I, I tracked it down. That, that, that was fun. And, okay. um, you know, I mean, other kinds of things, right, you know, that, that worked out, like writing, you know, like one of the first stories, you know, about the Macintosh, right? And, and that was an amazing experience. I, in one day, I went to Apple, met Steve Jobs the first time, but also met the team, um, some of whom became friends for life. You know, you, you imagine a story where you meet three people who wind up becoming your friends for decades. You watch their kids grow up, they watch your kid grow up. You know, um, that, 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 that was crazy. But I think the most thing I'm, I'm most proud of is the cumulative effect of it. Yeah. That, you know, that it all ties together and people see it as a continuum. So when I write a book like Facebook, you know, they see this in the context of my larger work, which I do see as somewhat of a piece. Mm. You remind me of one of my favorite Steve Jobs quotes. Um, it comes from his Stanford address, uh, commencement address. And he said, um, for most of our careers, the dots only connect in retrospect. 
And that's definitely how I feel in my career. And looking at yours from the outside, it looks like this beautiful, natural, like, of course you were going to have this trajectory moment. And it's so fascinating to hear from even your perspective, looking back of like, well, I was just the right place at the right time. I put myself up for something I wasn't ready for. I, I met these people that I didn't know were about to change the entire world. And you just dove in head first with a confidence that you'd figure it out along the way. And for me, I think that gives- it happens a lot. I mean, really, I mean, you know, the, maybe less so now, you know, like my son, you know, as a young adult, um, you know, he, he, and he found a career, you know, by almost by serendipity. He's now a photographer. Um, and, you know, he started, uh, graduated college in playwriting and, you know, was trying to write for TVs and movies and, and, for money, started shooting people headshots and things, and wound up shooting comedy shows. And now he's, you know, like a does really well in shooting comics in in LA. And he loves photography, and he's really great at it. But I think a lot of his classmates they were, were driven to say, "I've got to do this yeah. early on." Right? And you know, can people tell them that? But quite often, um, when they're beginning their careers they see something different. Even if they're dedicated to be a lawyer, um, a certain kind of law might present itself to them and take them in a different path. It's incredible. That is the best business advice. I, I couldn't agree more. Being really open to seeing opportunities for pivots, prioritizing learning, ways in which you can use your talents in, in creative and unexpected ways. And I feel like you and I, um, maybe this is something I think is a commonality is we have noticed irreplicable opportunities when they're on the verge of happening of like, I got to jump, I, this I should jump full into because this moment will never happen again. Creating right. No computing will never happen again. Meeting, you know, going to this um, crazy event with Wozniak will never happen again. And surrounding ourselves with people who create those moments for me has been of my greatest career satisfaction. And I think you have the same instincts. You see those. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you, you say that, you know, because I, I believe strongly. So one of my commandments of journalism is that when you start on a story, what you find when you research the story is always, and I mean, underline it twice, always more interesting than your preconception of what it might be. Real life is much more complex and fascinating and presents more opportunities than what you imagine it could be, right? And as a journalist, the worst thing to do is to say, to write the story before you begin researching it and saying, uh, this is a story where this person did X and Y overcame this, or this is a story of this company and this went wrong. I couldn't agree more. That is excellent life, career, and happiness advice. If you remain really open to these opportunities, you never know what might present itself. So the last question that I end every podcast with is, can you tell me something that gives you hope for the future? Yeah, I think, the People who have good intentions, they're optimistic, can be connected to each other in ways they could not before. Um, during this pandemic, look at the way people, largely locked in their houses, managed to reach out to other people. You know, and it, we all miss, you know, physically going and seeing sometimes our relatives who we don't aren't able to, to, to see, or, you know, um, we're traveling to places that we, you know, would routinely travel to. This is the longest I've never been to California. Um, and, but we're able to stay connected and, and, and know that our experience is common. So I, I think that is something to hang on to that, you know, uh, the thoughts we have aren't, like our lonely thoughts to ourselves, but other people are thinking it too. And we could draw from that and, and band together. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you so much for your time. Incredibly inspiring conversation. And what a joy to be reconnected with you. Oh, what great, great uh, seeing you again. And, uh, you know, we should, you know, just, uh, do some more catching up uh, off the podcast. I would love that. So what's the best way for our listeners to connect with you if they want to continue this conversation? Is the newsletter the best way to 
Yeah, uh, yeah, you can go to Wired, um, you know, just uh, search for my name, look for the plain text newsletter. Um, it only costs, the, you know, five bucks a, for the first year to get not only my newsletter, you know, uh, sent to you every, every, every week, but you get all the contents of Wired without the paywall and you get the magazine. You know, that's a, that's a like a first year introductory offer. It's cheaper if you sign up through my newsletter. Um, and, you know, we hope that you'll like it so much that you'll sign up at a higher price after that. Um, StephenLevy.com is there. Um, and uh, Facebook, The Inside Story, available at a bookstore on or offline near you. The newsletter and buying your book has been the best money I have spent this year, for sure. Thank you for your hard work and for um, the very, very important work you do. That's a big part of our democratic process. So thank you for sharing your thoughts and your time with us today. And I really look forward to everyone signing up and connecting with you going forward. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Bet on Yourself podcast. If you're like me, you have a lot of new insights and ideas of things you want to implement from this episode. Don't worry if you were listening to this while walking the dog or putting a baby to sleep or driving and didn't have hands for you to take notes. We've done the hard work for you. Check out the show notes here in your podcast app or on my website, annhyatt.co, for additional resources. While you're there, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which always supplements these podcast themes with additional free resources. May I ask for a quick favor? Please click on that follow or subscribe button here in your podcast app so you don't miss an episode and give us a five-star rating. I'd love it if you'd also share this via your social media with your friends and tag me so that I can see what resonated with you, who you would like to hear on future episodes, and what topics are on your mind. We'll be back next week with even more content to support you in your big bets. I'll see you then.